You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always, and this has to be the most hotly anticipated episode we have had in 245 weeks. We've had Paul Blackburn, Cole Dutton, Tanya Steinbeck, Kath Hart, Sandra Brewer, Nathan Blackburn, Craig Wallace, Brennan Ptolemy, Bianca Sandry, the most influential, intelligent people in Perth on this list in addition to a good hundred number one sales agents in Perth who all know what they're doing. But today we sit down with the successor of the previous Minister for Planning, Rita Safiotti, is John Kerry in the house John, thank you so much for coming in. There are thousands of people listening today who have been hitting me up every week on the phone saying, when is Minister John Kerry coming in? I can't wait to hear it. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Trent. You're terrifying me (laughs) and you're building up uh, high expectations here. So I will do my best. First of all, I want to say thank you for this program. I think it's great that you do it. I love the fact that it's something really locally focused and that you're trying to get people talking and think about different ways of doing things. So well done. It's awesome. Thank you. Let's set the scene for a minute if we can. We sit indefinitely the largest and most critical housing supply crisis since I was born. We have just over 5,000 properties on the market for sale. Half of those are fully detached houses. That's less than a third of what it was when Bill Shorten lost the unlosable election in 2019. It was 17,000 in March 2019. We have 2,000 properties on the market to rent. It's down from 11,000. And a rental vacancy rate that obviously reflects that at less than half a percent. We're building just over maybe 10,000 houses a year and bringing in about 50,000, 60,000 people a year who need about 30,000 of those. We have 30,000 people on the social housing waiting list looking for about 20,000 houses. It's a tough predicament you've walked into. It's a brave man who walks into this job because everyone in this industry who understands the planning, housing, homelessness space as well recognises that you're damned if you do, damned if you don't in a lot of the ways you look at solutions and it is currently death by a thousand cuts for everyone in this industry. Before we start talking about you for a second, I thought you might have a few initial thoughts about how your life's going right now as Minister for Planning, Housing, Homelessness and Lands. Yeah, look, I've been on the record. It's bloody challenging times and I'm a straight shooter. I do say this, COVID has radically reshaped markets. I always point to the fact when you think prior to COVID and you were a tenant, maybe, it was a renter's market. It's a good time to be a tenant. It was a renter's dream. You had a choice of homes and it was really on your terms. And then COVID hits and a range of things happen. International borders close, right decision, but that affected obviously skilled labour and we face that skilled labour shortage now. We have shutdowns in China, war in Ukraine, but all those sorts of issues have affected global supply chain issues, which then causes cost escalations, which have only started now to taper, which is a good sign, but it's been tough for the housing builders. And then top of that, because we did manage COVID so well, people are leaving New South Wales and Victoria and they're coming to WA and Queensland. So we're seeing more people come to Perth. So you throw all those factors in, plus some more historical issues about approaches to planning, to density and infill, you've then got this tough scenario. But I do want to say this, I live and breathe it every day. 
I'm always open to new ideas and I've done it in the housing portfolios. I'll always look to how we can drive reform. It is always a challenge. Ideas are contested. It's not simply that a minister says, and I decree this policy right now and go forth and change. Policy ideas are contested. They're contested with government agencies. They're contested with Treasury. They're contested with stakeholders. And so you've also got to be pragmatic about what are the reforms that I can drive and change and make effect to. But I want to assure all your listeners, I do have an open door policy. I do listen and I do engage about how I can change and get the best policy settings. That brings a lot of comfort to my ears. And I know the people listening today and those people go from the mum and dad investor across the country, to be frank, these days, all the way up to the CEOs of the biggest companies you speak to on a weekly basis as well. They're all listening and they would get a lot of comfort hearing what you've just said there. An understanding, a willingness to be a part of the change and and the difference for the future. There's always ways to improve. I thought it would be interesting and helpful for us to learn more about you. However, first off, before we delve into the deeper issues on housing and planning and homelessness, if it's okay, I'd love to go back to young John Kerry coming out of uni. What was the first job you did? The first job I did was McDonald's and actually was a really good job to get because it taught you just about the basics of checking in, checking out, working hard. I did the meat patties. Then I got to the front counter and then I hosted kids' birthday parties. But after that, then worked in a brewery. Those sorts of jobs are really good because you appreciate hard work. You Mm. appreciate that to earn money, it just doesn't come from your parents. You've actually got to work your guts out for it. And it sometimes really requires hard and sometimes crappy work as well over the meat patties. And I think I got more acne out of that. Those sorts of jobs were actually really good stead just to appreciate work and getting income for it. Chantel Tui from Channel 7 said to me last week on a piece that you were a journo back in the day. Yes, I also was a journalist. I did 6PR radio as a producer. Then I was at News Limited at Sunday Times, the Oz, and it was then the Perth Weekly. and ended up at the Sunday Times. Then was at Channel 7. I wasn't the best TV journalist, I've got to say, in part, I think, because I wanted to argue a point rather than actually report on the news. I never wanted to be a bystander. So I think ultimately that's why I was attracted to politics because I want to create change. I want to get stuff done. So where was that transition in? Councillor at the city of Vincent? I did have a crack and lost. I was still working in the environment movement. So I worked for Pew Charitable Trusts And I worked for a couple of premiers, but then worked in the environment movement under a liberal government and actually had great success under Colin Barnett in getting the Great Kimberley Marine Park created and advocating for that. I'm very outcome and achievement focused. I lobbied and met with and publicly congratulated a liberal premier and a liberal environment minister. I'm focused on outcomes. I will meet stakeholders who might be on the other side of the political allegiance, but I don't care because it's about outcomes. It's about being, right, what are we going to achieve here? But yeah, while I was in my student days heavily interested in student politics, it wasn't until running for council, getting elected for council, and then ultimately stepping into the role of the mayor that I got my passion for urban planning and all those sorts of things which I continue to work on today. Tell us a bit more about that time. Obviously, City of Vincent, it's a city that splits opinions in a lot of development spaces. Some people have a great time with the City of Vincent. Others would call it one of the hardest 
other cities to work with. Obviously, that's the city itself. You sat in the council, obviously, as mayor. So you had a slightly different role there, but you would understand the culture and the challenges around the area. We've chatted before over coffee about the building that I live in, the Bottle Yard building. Yeah. That is an example for me of great community consultation to get a great outcome that started with a lot of very scared people. Yeah. And look, on the Bottle Yard, in fact, if you remember, I was the mayor and I wasn't a decision maker, but I hosted a community forum where at that forum, residents moderated their views. And actually, many then went on to say, actually, what's now being revised is actually good for the neighbourhood. Look, it is difficult. I certainly, as the mayor, focused on livability. So I refocused the organisation on improving town centres, which are about where people want to live in Leaderville, Mount Hawthorne, North Perth. We did a lot of good stuff, but we did cut red tape. We came out with an alfresco policy that abolished fees and enabled small business to get approvals within five minutes online. So we did some really good changes about the culture of the organisation. We got a new CEO in who was a former director of planning at Wanneroo, had a great reputation, so to look at the culture. And we actually changed the city of Vincent from being rated one of the worst across the board to being the best across a large number of areas, including leadership, good governance, transparency and accountability. But I will acknowledge there's always more work to do. And certainly some of my views have changed, and that's been on the public record, about local governments and planning because it is so varied in the local government sector. You do have local governments that are really trying to do their best to facilitate great density in town centres, and you have others that make life so bloody difficult even for a subdivision with a a double-storey home. So it is very apparent to me, and this has been my own personal growth, that there is huge variance in the local government sector. And actually, you can. You can get a local government that does something really well in one area of planning, so maybe change of use, and then in another area, it's pretty poor. And so this is where we talk about the planning reform piece. Uh, Certainly, I've been on my own journey because we do need more housing in this critical time. And so we do have to look at the planning approval processes. You're a listener. Clearly, one thing I know about you from afar is that you're probably one of the only members of parliament that I see actively knocking doors, going out there, not scared to just have a chat with people. How does it go these days? Obviously, a lot of people not often get their door knocked these days. Is it? a strange experience for you? Do you find it to be a positive experience? And the reason I ask is because clearly you are trying to listen. And when it comes to the example you just gave, then clearly you are. A lot of people could sit back at a state level and say, not my problem, that's local government. But the reality is state government can set government policy at their level. If the local governments don't want to play a ball, it is hell for us as developers in the planning and builders to actually do our jobs and provide the supply you're trying to legislate for. How's the door knocking? How's the life of a door knocker? It's about staying in touch with your community. Now, as the mayor and in my first term, I used to do two to three hours on a Saturday. Now it's an hour being a minister. But that's still enough to do a good street and have one-on-one conversations. Often people are just surprised you're door knocking, although most people in my community know I've done it. In fact, I'm door knocking people. I'm hitting them the third time. And you have... If you door knock and you're engaged, people like it because you're listening, you hear good and bad, you're not living in a bubble, but often people just say, hey, really appreciate it, can't think of anything now, but I give them a survey and Mm. then they get back to you. Some will have a significant chin wag on a really contentious issue, 
but often it's very hyper local. So people will personal. Yeah, people will focus on really local issues that are a concern to them. But it's a good way of making sure you're not living in a bubble. That's the point, right? Because other than being the minister for everything under the sun right now, you're also the member for your local area. That comes first and foremost, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it can be difficult because there are issues like being the Minister for Homelessness, where a service provider will come into my community and then you get that some residents will say, well, I don't support this and I'm their local member, but I'm also the Minister for Homelessness. And that is a tension. And I think you've got to acknowledge it and say this is a tension rather than pretending it's not. And I've got to sort of juggle that. And certainly now as the Minister for Planning, we sometimes you do have to take a step back, whereas as the local member, it is easier just to take positions, you know, be lobbying the minister. Oh, that's right. But when you become the minister for planning, there is, and you know, there are matters that can end up before the SAT or Supreme Court, then you do have to be very clear on your role, even with local residents. So effectively now, I advise people on process, but I don't take positions Mm. on developments because I'm the Minister for Planning and have oversight over policy and et cetera. It's gotten other ministers in trouble in the past, so it makes sense not to... And it's easy because proponents or residents may want me to take a position on a particular development in my electorate. Both sides. People say, be pro, be against. And I'm going to be, well, actually, I'm the Minister for Planning now. Yeah. Let's put the Minister for Housing hat on. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> you were appointed Minister for Housing March 2021. I assume you're extremely proud of that. You were considered a junior minister at the time. And I think a lot of people's ears pricked up when they saw you come from Vincent to member to minister very quickly. But I think the general consensus is that most people in industry recognise that despite how hard your job has been, you're actually someone who does care and is getting things done, which is why uh, it's so uh, anticipated to hear you today talking about the other portfolios as well. When it comes to the Minister for Housing position, though, is it easy enough to reflect on the last couple of years and look back on the decade before and recognise that in, in many ways you were handed an unwinnable situation, both from the COVID timing, but also from a lot of lack of investment in social housing previous to that. Does it feel like damned if you do, damned if you don't? Every dollar you spend is higher cost for the rest of the industry or less labourers available for their developments? Yeah. Look, I'm certainly cognizant of the role social housing has in terms of broader housing continuum and policy. And certainly within our first two years of delivery, we set a target of 1,300 homes and we met that at 1,356. So we made a public promise and we met it. And we were always very clear that we would step up construction as the market tapered off or declined. And I'll have to say currently we are getting feedback now from builders that some are actually coming forward and saying we're interested in developing Mm. social housing. I love this job. I know I'm so lucky to be a minister. I'm passionate about social housing. It is a double-edged sword in this, in that it's funny. People love social housing, and I've been on the record about this, but not necessarily within a kilometre of their own home. Just like childcare centres. So, yeah, people go... Yeah, John, go for it. You go for it. You, you you know. Not next to me, though. Just not next to me or homelessness, but not next to me. And I'm not a hypocrite on this because I live within 
four to five minutes of a homeless respite centre. But I'm not dismissive of those concerns. I understand that there can be both challenges with social housing and homelessness accommodation. So I'm not one of those that believes that there couldn't be social behaviour or other issues. Well, you and I live very close to each other, John. We see it on Palmerston Street all the time. So I'm not dismissive of that. But we are trying to integrate social housing across suburbs. It can't be the old model, which is... Brownlee Towers, Big Towers, 300 people, Stirling Towers, 150 people. You need mixes. I mean, you can still do density under certain conditions, but what we've got to do is try to integrate it, be creative in our models. I know I've got a bloody big challenge, but I've thrown everything at this and I've tried to reform it accelerating delivery, looking at procurement. I've brought in new models of delivery, modular programs, using timber frame, converting surplus government's housing stock to social housing. So I've tried to think outside the box and I'm always looking at different ways, different procurement models and using lazy government land to boost housing. If my numbers are correct, you've budgeted about 600 grand a house. That obviously, if you reflect it in the market and costs going up, by about 50% for a build. If this was done five, seven years ago by previous ministers, uh, we wouldn't be spending so much for the same outcome. We would have got a lot more bang for our buck back in the day. Do you rue that? Do you look back and go, this should have been done? Is it, a, is it just a fact it should have been done back when construction costs were lower and builders actually needed work? My focus is on how do I meet that 4,000 target? I'm aggressively and ambitiously looking at every which way and I've delivered on the target to date. And so I'm not looking to the rear, mate, because... Mm. It is what it is. Yeah, I've got to look to the future. And I have to say, homelessness and housing advocates would look over the last 40 years and say, successive governments should have done this or done that. I can't focus on the past. My focus is on delivery right now. And I'm now looking at, through our housing diversity pipeline, how do I use lazy government land or critical sites to create mixed density development that is affordable or social? But also, how do I get the other policy settings right so that I can facilitate density and infill, which we critically need? So while, yes, my remit as the housing minister is social housing, delivery and affordable housing. Planning and lands and housing is also focused on infill and how do we get that because we need it mm. in Western Australia. And it's for me, when you talk about looking to the rear or to the past, I would say I wish we had made, you know, Reed had made some really progressive planning reforms, but perhaps those planning reforms should have been done 30 years ago. I mean, Western Australia, and I get all the complaints. I don't meet anyone who doesn't complain a planning system. But actually, Western Australia is still viewed as a better planning system than other states. Look, New South Wales, which I just hear awful from everyone. Western Australia, we've still got lots of reform to do in the planning space, but I do think we're better off than many other states. Do you think there's a time where the 30,000 social housing applicants asking for 19,000 houses is back down below 10,000 in this decade? Is it possible to get us there? I've always been on the record that it is always tied to the rental market. Of course it is. You have to only look back. Look at the history of waiting lists it is always tied to rental markets. So we are delivering social housing, but ultimately it is always attached. So when people think that the rental market is cheaper, 
they will go back to the rental market because they get more choice. And you've got to remember this about the public waiting list. I take it seriously. And every day, as I said, I'm looking at how we can accelerate the delivery of social housing. But it's recognised even by the opposition that the majority of people on the public waiting list do have a home. Mm. We have a separate data, which we're trying to do better at for rough sleepers. And we've created a new rough sleeper program. It's called the Supported Landlord Model, which helps rough sleepers get directly off the street into a unit with a supported landlord community housing provider and access to wraparound support services. We really are trying to improve our data around rough sleepers and that's certainly one key focus of my work is is rough sleepers. You mentioned social housing and its connection to the rental market and I think it's obvious to me, hopefully it's obvious to other people that this is a continuum issue. It starts really from those most secure in housing in their own properties without a mortgage, goes all the way down to those with mortgages, first home buyers, renters and and whenever the market squeezes along that continuum, it comes out the tube at the other end and it's the most vulnerable where the pressure goes into social housing. As you said, four or five years ago, there wasn't as much pressure in social housing just as a function of the fact there was no pressure in the rental market. Yeah. There's always a place, even for those people that maybe weren't great tenants, they had somewhere to live at the time fairly cheaply. You then juxtapose that against the insane level of pressure the Greens are putting on the federal government right now when it comes to rent capping. I can't think of a more idiotic, ridiculous, anti-economic policy from a party who clearly haven't done year 10 economics. When you cap the incentive on the rental market, you disincentivize a new supply coming on. And we've just mentioned that the second that we reduce supply in the rental market, it puts more pressure on Minister Kerry in the social housing market. Is it obvious? Can we allay concerns here in Western Australia that... The Minister for Housing, the Minister for Planning, everyone in government here recognise that the last thing you want to do is cap rents and disincentivize the 95% of the private investment population who are actually the market, mum and dad's making 100 grand a year on average, who are the ballast for this social housing. Without us, social housing is knackered in the first place. It's very easy for the Greens to take a really populist line. And I understand in parts, probably because they've done polling or research, that it would appeal to young renters. And I understand. We're all cognizant of the pressures that renters are facing. But I don't agree with a punitive approach, which is what they're suggesting. I've never found that kind of punitive politics to work. And also, it will no doubt drive out investors. And that's my biggest concern. And you're also right to say that when people think landlords, it's always this, you know... Scrooge big, McDuck. Yeah, whereas often it is mum and dad investors with one property that is effectively their super fund. So I don't. I don't support caps. I do note other states. I think Victoria this is This is what's look, scaring us. Yeah, Queensland, so, Victoria, they're so starting to roll. We will not do that. We also, as you would be aware, announced rental reforms. And I know not everyone liked all of it because we did increase allowing pets, allowing some changes, but we also uh, said we weren't going to, in this market, to ban no ground evictions, because again, the same fear was that it would drive people out of the rental market. In fact, the Bankwest Curtin Economic Centre said, be careful with your policy settings around the rental market, because it might drive investors out. And as you know, we're trying to get more apartments built. That's why we've created an infrastructure fund, that is working, that is subsidising the headworks. People are using it? Yep. 
So I've announced the first round already where it is funding headwork costs. So basically water, court, western water, power, western yeah. power. We'll be announcing a second run around and also our infrastructure fund for workers. So yeah, people are stepping forward and saying this will help get our project over the line. Mm. Now, again, it's disappointing to see that a small group of people are saying, well, what a disgrace to give these grants to builders or developers. <laughs> But we need infill. We need apartments. We need apartments. <laughs> yeah. This is critical. Any housing that is added to the market is good for the overall housing supply. And that's what the opposition doesn't understand, who are now arguing to strip back some of our planning reforms, is it doesn't matter which part of the continuum, social housing, affordable housing, other medium product, other housing stock, even the stuff in the western suburbs, it's still adding to the overall market. Yep. So we need all of it. It's all linked together. Yep. It's all part of one ripple effect coming from the top down to the bottom. Talking about the accessibility of housing as well, Keystart has been a real gripe for me over the years. It represents itself as a social good, is a very powerful organisation in terms of the good it can provide. It brands itself as an organisation that is the stepladder onto the market for young people. But I struggle with the reality that whilst it does allow people with 2% deposits to get into the market without paying lenders' mortgage insurance, what it does do is charge those people who are the most vulnerable people looking to buy a house in the market the highest interest rates in the country and expects them to then be able to pay that principal and interest off and then pay their mortgage down and one day get off Keystart, which is the goal of Keystart, they say that, to get back into a regular bank at a more competitive rate. It doesn't make sense to me that a government organisation who doesn't need the extra percent is charging the extra percent when its whole remit is to help people get off of Keystart in the first place. It's like having a noose around your leg when you're trying to get out of there. And then I note that since the federal government first home buyer deposit scheme has come in, it's really started to take some clientele out of that space for Keystart. You've obviously already recognised this. I think you've reduced the Keystart rate by 0.89%. Is there not another percent in it? I'm going to respectfully disagree with you a little, and I hope you don't. No, it's good. of course. It's good. But, I mean, ultimately, Keystart has been an incredible success story in Western Australia, and other states have looked to it, and some have been jealous that they've not had the same player in the market. But I want to always be clear, and you did highlight it yourself, Keystart is never meant to be a long-term lender. It is always meant to be a transitional lender. Get them into their home and at the stage, get them off the books. Mm. And in fact, we've seen a huge number of people shift and move on. Of course. Because they've got that, they've built equity and they've moved on. There's still a risk to the state because we are a low barrier lending service. There is a greater risk. We have to protects taxpayers' risk. You're underwriting that 18%. Yeah. So, But I do want to be clear that ultimately we did make a change to the policy. It used to be set to the four big banks. I did ask for a review and then we did announce the change that it was at 350 points above the cash rate. So we did change it. But ultimately... I do think still some people confuse it. It's a transitional lender. It is never meant to be a long-term mm. uh, lender. And that's reflected in the stats where the majority do get in and get out and move on. We can always look at new products and how those products can assist and tailor particular cohorts of people. 
But overall, I believe that Keystart's been pretty good. And I think our change to the rate has been an acknowledgement that uh, in reviewing the settings and given that now we are an extraordinary time that we've seen successive interest rate rises, I think it was at the right time to review the policy. Don't want to buy the hand that feeds us, obviously. But as someone who has a mortgage broking background as well, I can promise you that the only incentive you need as a client to get off the rate you're on right now and move to a different bank is maybe 0.2%. doesn't have to be a full percent above everyone else. That extra 0.8%, for example, would be the difference that would help people, not to mention the passive rise in capital growth in their property values. If we're talking about paying their mortgage down, that's money in their pocket that would help them get a little bit closer, a little bit quicker. That's the message, I guess, that I'm passing on from that space to keep in mind, if you can, that especially through the times of 2016 to 2020, there are thousands of people in Byford, Ellenbrook, Alchemos, Baldivis, all funneled through the house and land industry with Keystart, with minimal savings, minimal cash flow, all stuck not being able to refinance because their houses are worth less than they paid from at the time, but also paying interest rates significantly higher than anyone else on the street. And when the market moves the other way again, that's the risk that we're putting on these most vulnerable people in WA. That will be the message. I understand the transitional side of things, but it would be great to, to continue to see further reform in that space if possible. Can we talk Minister for Planning? Sure. It's a new role for you. You've only been in it for a couple of months, and I think a lot of people in the industry recognise how important a ministerial space this is when we think about what's important to WA right now. It's housing, it's hospitals, and it's the correctional facilities, right? We can't do a lot about the other two in this room, but certainly we can talk about the housing side through the planning hat. A lot of people outside of the property market don't recognize just how critical this role is. This is an extremely important, impactful, powerful role because it governs the rule book for all the builders, developers, mum and dad, all the way up to your biggest companies on how efficiently, from a time and cost perspective, they can deliver and solve this problem right now in the supply space. Do you recognize that clearly, that this is in regards to the timing of it, this is probably the most important ministerial position appointment. And it's a big pat on the back from Premier Cook, isn't it? I'm not going to say that, oh, my portfolio is more important than the other portfolio. I am. Well, <laughs> you can, but I suspect the health minister or the transport minister or the treasurer. But I will say this, planning is critical at any time about how you shape a city and, of course, how you shape Perth. So planning is critical because the planning policy settings that you do now affect the next 50 to 100 years. That's at any time. But in particular, given that we need more housing in this tight market and given that we need more apartments in infill, obviously the policy settings that we do now in planning are critical because planning can make or break projects it can add to costs there is a number of factors at play so i'm deeply cognizant that we've got to make sure that we get the policy settings right but i think with planning and i believe this i don't think there's ever a stage in the planning system or as a planning minister you say my work is done you never say Ah, we've got the system right. You are constantly on alert for about how you can improve it, recognising it's complex and recognising even making change in planning can be difficult and complex. In your first week, the Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage dumped the draft POS policy on everyone's desk and you had to deal with it. I'm very aware that there was a big furor straight up from the advocacy groups representing all of us really looking at that policy and thinking how tone deaf that thing could be at a time where we need, as you said, every policy to be assisting with supply delivery and cost. 
this is a policy that goes in the exact opposite direction, looking to add cost to developers. And what no one seems to recognize ultimately ends up being the end buyer. Every policy we have been bringing in over the last few years seems to directly affect the cost of the end buyer of that next piece of supply in Western Australia. It's not really affecting that person in North Perth or Netherlands or Wembley. It's affecting the cost of land or apartments in that brand new apartment building or that brand new block of land in Bold Ibis. Michael Zorbis, the head of the Property Council of Australia, was very much spot on when he said himself that any piece of supply that Australian government or the state governments can help come online right now is welcome and that any new policy should be looked at through the lens of does this help reduce costs does this help increase supply over the last year we've had the draft pos policy the aboriginal cultural heritage policy the schools contribution policy and the medium density code policy arguments could be strongly made that all four of these policies work in the exact opposite way that we need them to right now to be able to make a supply of new housing more cost effective and time effective If we can start with the POS, it was pretty impressive to see you in your first couple of weeks come straight out and say, hang on a second, I've had a quick read of this. No way are we doing this in the built strata space, even though the local governments all the way through to the DPLH have been politically, ideologically pushing this for about two years now. And we don't know how and why, to be honest. I would suggest it needs to go even further in that there are thousands of mum and dad developers out there who are doing triplexes in Warwick, Coolbullup, Willoughby, Morley, who are scratching their heads going, now you want to charge me another $30,000 for something I was doing last week? I thought we were all supposed to be contributing towards urban infill and now we're giving the city of Bayswater or the city of Stirling or the city of Melville tens of thousands of dollars to upgrade the park we've already had for 30 years. What's going on in this space, in the POS space, John? I think you've referred to a lot of different policies, but I do want to say how these policies are developed. And there is a logical position in terms of standardisation. As you know, often local governments create their own policies on a range of fronts. And another area of reform we're looking at is local planning policies because there's thousands. Mm -hmm. I think there's thousands. And for punters who are not familiar with that, basically the planning system does allow, in addition to having a scheme, to having a particular policy that might shape contributions or it might shape built form. There's a range of different local planning policies. Now, I think, and I do a slightly different assessment from your assessment, is I strongly believe in greater standardisation. And I've done that as a local government minister. When I was a local government minister with reforms, there's a lot more standardisation coming through the system. And I think it's the same approach planning that you bring out a statewide policy or you bring out a position statement. It's about saying, well, we're trying to standardise. But as part of that, you can then get an agency with, you know, noble visions who want to then also do some other net gains or work. So I understood the logic about having a consistent policy on public open space, but but Mm. I don't support ultimately, and it was trying to address particular councils like Netherlands who were moving well ahead of the game. On their own Bingo. So I understand what the commission was trying to do, but ultimately when I reviewed the policy, it was very clear to me that in the current settings, and this is why it's great to have the Minister for Housing and Planning together, I reviewed the settings and went, Well, no, I do not want to see any additional public open space contribution. This is impost. Yeah. So 
the policy is still out there. It will still be consulted on. But in the meantime, the, the change will be coming very soon that the WAPC will approve any contribution that is suggested by a council. And I think I've signalled very clearly my position on that. Now, I've got a whole other package of planning reform that I'm working on that is big and significant. I am looking at all the work that the agency's doing so that I can signal very clearly that we've got to look at areas that we can cut red tape. And I think so hopefully the signal regarding public open space and what I've signaled there is my intention. That's really positive to hear because it seems like, and Megan Adair from Satterley said this at an event recently, it is death by a thousand cuts. It's one of two things, and I would like to be optimistic about it. It's either that from the top down at the DPLH, there is an ideology of creating more impost, more cost, making it harder to develop property in Western Australia which I don't believe is the case because that's what it looks like if you look at it pessimistically. But optimistically, it's the opposite of all these policy teams are working with their best intentions in silos, trying to develop policies, but not understanding the impact it has. 1% here, 1% there, it all becomes 30% of new cost of new land or apartments is taxes. So it comes off as policy teams not talking to each other, recognising that when you add this one and this one and this one, now that we don't have an apartment development, now that triplex in Warwick turns into a duplex because why would we pay an extra $30,000 in POS contribution? So now you haven't met your infill targets to see your journal up. All these things start to add up. You put $30,000 or $40,000 or $50,000 or $100,000 POS contributions on a small mum and dad investor, they'll just underdevelop. They'll just do it a side-by-side development rather than a triplex, for example, and then you never met your targets. Sure. And look, I suppose that's why I'm also driving a second package of planning reform. So Rita, the planning minister at the time, did a big package reform despite opposition from some noisy local governments. and It was brave. Yeah, because there was some really quite misogynistic, and I just think Rita copped a lot, particularly in the, the Subiaco Post, and I think unfairly, for reforms now that are being viewed across Australia as much needed for our housing challenges. So I want to assure the sector, but I assure all stakeholders that I am working on a second package of reforms and looking at the opportunities to address those hurdles when it comes to approvals. Again, I suspect I'll cop criticism from some local governments. But, you know, there is a real line in the sand, and I'll point this to your listeners, is that the opposition in the Subiaco Post last week has actually said that they want to reverse our significant pathway process and they want to change other reforms and send it back to local government. I'll give you an example. The Children's Hospice went through the significant pathway and I've seen commentary by the opposition that says they want to abolish that process and I think even suggest send it back to local government who had a debate saying that building a hospice there was at risk of foreign powers being threatened. I think we all saw that. So we've still got education to do with a wider community to say this is why we need planning reform. But one example of why we shouldn't go backwards is, is that the level of debate at some local governments, I would suggest like Netherlands, means that we can't allow we can't it to go it. back. Exactly. Because it's a safety net. Uh, that hospice 
I suspect had been left to Netherlands would have never have been approved. Never ever. There are people across the industry, across the state, scratching their head at the stupidity and sanity at that level. And it's because of this state pathway that you start to see good outcomes that every other person in the state looks at and goes, well done. That's exactly well, what we, we all would for, have voted for. for projects of significance and the DAP reforms, which are consolidating the DAPs, trying to get more consistent decision-making with full-time employees will also, I hope, deliver... Consistency. Yeah, in that decision-making because I'm aware of that criticism and I've seen it myself. And I think a lot of people have seen it from all sides of the debate, whether you're in the community, whether you're a proponent. So we want greater consistency in decision-making. The medium density code. Yeah. Now, this has been hotly debated over this year. It has caused a lot of friction in the industry, both from the development space, the construction space, what this policy is asking us to do is essentially move forward into the future. In some ways, gold plate our development. It is ideological. It looks to increase more green canopy and more outdoor play area. And it's essentially, in a lot of ways, either going to force two-story development in a lot of suburbs, in most suburbs, I should say. And in those suburbs that can't afford two-story development is probably going to have the unwanted effect of underdevelopment because you just can't fit a three by two on this square meterage anymore. So there are a lot of proponents for the medium density code. I recognize that trying to push us into the future. But at, the, at a time where our housing supply and the delivery of that is absolutely, as we know, in the worst state it could be, many people will argue that at the very least, this policy should be delayed to have a rethink about how practical some of the outcomes of frontages, open spaces, setbacks, and allocation of site coverage are actually going to have what that's going to do to development in an infill sector especially but also on the urban fringes they're either saying we at least need to delay it and if not totally pull it back and start it again it is an ideological policy john it is one that is going to gold plate development but i would argue that in a place like nolamara where a triplex on 728 square meters will require a buyer to pay four hundred fifty thousand dollars per single story house is in a market like this where one two-story triplex costs about $500,000 to build itself now. Going to make that new buyer in Nolamara looking at the five-year-old three-by-two one-story for four hundred fifty grand, or the off-the-plan two-story $800,000 option impossible to make choices on and therefore the developer rather never develop or underdevelop that block to a yeah. two lot. Do you recognize some of these impracticalities in this code? I'm going to disagree with you in some of your assessments. So I think medium density code overall is needed in terms of we had some really poor product being developed. To ask for better light and natural ventilation of homes, I think is needed because I can point to examples of product and it was in that sort of medium density which was really, in 10 years, uh, is this going to be still livable homes? Now, I understand we need as much housing as we can, and I am listening to the sector. And I have to say, you also acknowledge, there is a lot of diversity of views. There are very big, strong proponents of the medium density code. And there are plenty of people are getting on that are saying, yep, this is working for us. But I am listening. I am looking at what potential measures we can do. And I, I suppose what I'm really looking at is, and I think this is what you're talking about, is the the single lot uh, R30. 
Um, R- R40. R30. Yeah. Look, let, we speak about suburbs like Coolblatt, Balgar, Westminster, Nolamara. This medium dense code will work fine in Netherlands. People will be able to afford the terrace product in Shenton Park and Subiaco, no problems. But at the affordable level, this is essentially bringing up the minimum build well, to a space that people will not be able to afford yeah, to well, buy and therefore develop. Yeah, what I can assure you is I'm engaging with the Property Council, with UDIA, with HIA. I am looking at the policy in relation to the lower density. But I've heard that there's not many R30s in Perth and I've heard that you're looking at pulling R30 out of it as you know, word on the street. It's the R40. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the R40 space where across many of these suburbs where I rec- recognise there are obvious examples of poor development, but also this is where you're going to get a lot of the private mum and dad developers adding supply. This medium density code, I can tell you straight up, will kill that. And if that's okay, and we're going to fix that by having a whole bunch more in apartments somehow, and somehow magically it's going to stack up for apartments in the next 12 months, then cool, we're okay, we're going to transition that way. But we can't be mandating townhouses in Balga. Well, look, all I, all I can up. say is I'm still engaging with the sector. I say this, it's like anything. You look at, as I said before, I'm constantly looking at policy, constantly looking at the planning system. What can I approve? There's always capacity. You know, I can't do everything. Mm. But I will, I want to assure you, Trent, I'm taking it seriously and I'm gauging all of those key advocacy groups about the policy rollout. Last topic and probably the most hotly spoken about in the last couple of months Aboriginal cultural heritage. This is a policy that some people are calling a government killer. The way it's been rolled out, a lack of review from a non-existent opposition is probably a a reason for that possibly as well. But we look at the market from a development perspective, not to mention mining and farming, and there are a lot of very nervous, scared people, not just because they don't have the information, but also those informed people who look at and go, there's some serious issues about the way that we are going to be able to roll out what we're doing in regards to a consultation process, speaking about larks, who are they, where are they coming from, what are they going to cost, how long is it going to take, how do I make sure there's no corruption in the system, how do we make sure they're competent. Would the alternative model not have been to have employed Indigenous corporations to build out a fantastically finite mapping system that we can all use and reference every day rather than an ad hoc project by project, lot by lot basis that's going to choke our system up for years to come? I do want to first say that this legislation just didn't come out of the blue. Obviously, it was in response to the destruction of an incredible site. And it has been five years in the making. It wasn't just like, well, overnight. It There was significant consultation. Mm. But the minister and the premier have already been on the record. There's been an implementation group created and all the key stakeholders around the table. The Premier and the Minister have indicated that if there need to be changes as part of this, then they're listening and they're engaging right now. So look, it's not within my portfolio area. I can't speak for the Minister and what those changes will be. But it affects your people yes, every day, I, doesn't I, it? I absolutely understand that. But I think what the government has clearly signalled is, is that we are engaging directly with stakeholders now including the Property Council, and saying, 
right, what are the sort of changes that you would suggest? And I think that's a government that's open. We're listening. The Premier is committed that we are going to be collaborative. So it's not that I don't take any concerns seriously, Trent. Mm. And I think you've just got to wait to see as the government, either implementation groups, looks at that process and looks at the rollout. And it's across that spectrum, isn't it, of it's not just the Murbacks, the Stocklands, the Peets, the Saddleys who are sitting there saying, can we dig our next 500 hectares out somewhere around Ellenbrook? It's the mum and dad in Craigie who've got a triple X block and bigger than 1,100 square metres. And now they're wondering, can I put a retaining wall in tomorrow? All the way down to that level across the spectrum of housing, it's just one more layer of uncertainty, cost, risk and time. So if the government can assist with that in some pragmatic reasonable solutions just like for example with you know bushfire which is not your portfolio or about urban areas where we're just getting on with the day-to-day these are the themes i think that your constituents in a planning and housing space the people who have been listening for an hour now are going to hope and expect from a man that who clearly have a lot of respect for and bring a lot of well wishes to the table on this is the most welcome appointment in a long time, I think, to this portfolio, to the breadth of these portfolios. I can promise you that the colleagues around me that have been calling every week saying, when are you getting Minister Kerry on? Uh, they have all been very much positive. We want to work with you. We are very happy and excited that you've joined the team. And we can't wait to deliver housing across the housing continuum together and, and work with you in a way that helps to solve this problem we need each other. You are the minister that creates the policies, that delivers these policies. We are the industry that acts on those policies in the best way. So thank you so much for your time for this hour today, Minister Kerry. It hasn't gone unnoticed in the industry that you've taken this time out and it's very much appreciated by the tens of thousands of people listening in Western Australia. Thank you. Thanks, Trent. And I just say, look, I don't ever want to be in a bubble. So it's really important to me to come here and that we do contest ideas because that's about holding me accountable but also getting me to think and respond and engage with stakeholders. So I never want to be in that bubble. So I will keep doing these kind of podcasts, forums, workshops, meetings, engaging stakeholders because I do want to get the really clear practical understandings about how policy changes or reforms can both improve or may create hurdles. Minister Kerry, thank you so much for your time today and we look forward to hopefully having you on again sometime in the future. Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!